Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Kurt Conrad. Dr. Conrad is a professor at the Department of Physiology and Functional Genomics at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Gainesville, Florida. Dr. Conrad, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you. So you have some very specialized interests in terms of, I guess, the broad subject of pregnancy and cardiovascular issues. Can you expand a little bit on what your interests are, please? Yes. In a nutshell, uh, normal pregnancy is typified by massive systemic and renal vasodilatation. And I've always been interested in the mechanisms of that. What are the reproductive hormones? What are the vascular cellular mechanisms that mediate the vasodilatation? And the reason is, is because it's just fascinating. It's fascinating physiology. But secondly, if we can understand what these mechanisms are, we could potentially harness them to treat preeclampsia, which is a vasoconstrictive disease of pregnancy, and also longer-range goal to utilize these reproductive hormones that cause massive vasodilatation in the non-pregnant population as well to combat diseases of vasoconstriction there too. How did you get involved in this very specialized area? I'm a medical doctor by training, and when I was at Dartmouth Medical School, I was taken under the wing of Dr. Heinz Valton, whose expertise is water balance in the kidney. So I actually trained in kidney physiology. And when I did a clerkship, I arranged my clerkships in OB-GYN and PEDS out on the Indian Reservation in Gallup, New Mexico. I'm from New Mexico. And there I noticed many of the women coming in on drips of magnesium sulfate because they were hypertensive. And this is then indicative that they might have this disease, preeclampsia, which is a very terrible disease of pregnancy that can result in the death of both mother and the fetus. And so when I went to try to understand what might cause this disease, very little was known. And being trained as a physiologist, I then said, well, what causes the cardiovascular adaptations to normal pregnancy? And there, little was known as well. And so I thought maybe I had a little niche there in which to investigate these more remarkable changes. And that's pretty much what I've been doing since then. So in this broad area of reproductive and perinatal biology, uh, I suspect you're one of just a few that's involved in this particular type of research. Yes, there's not a lot of people involved in this research because it's at the intersection of reproductive biology, endocrinology, renal and cardiovascular. So it's a pretty specialized niche. You'll find people who are expert in each one of those fields, but combining them, which you need to do for the study of pregnancy, I think is rather unique. And in fact, one of your very own here, Sanji Shroff, is one of my colleagues, and he's also very much interested in this in this area. So I recall reading that uh, there's uh, some different conditions relative to these uh, assessments with assisted reproductive technologies? Yes. So that's another area that I'm interested in, and, and, and this is the reason why. It turns out that one of the major vasodilators of pregnancy, at least in our animal model, is a hormone made by the uh, corpus luteum of the ovary called relaxin, and it circulates during pregnancy. 
and we are able to manipulate the animal models so that we can eliminate relaxin, and we do that, these vasodilatory changes that I was speaking about go away. But how do you test this in women? You know, we just can't study animals. And the way that I thought we could do that was to study patients who get conceived through assisted reproductive technology, and this is the reason why. There are basically two kinds of reproductive technology. The first one, in which the woman undergoes ovulation induction with a hormone called FSH. This makes a lot of follicles and a lot of eggs. So the physician can go in there, harvest the eggs, and then in vitro fertilize these eggs to make embryos, and then put the best embryo back in the womb. But a consequence of this is that this woman can have as many as 25 corpus lutea. Relaxin is made by the corpus lutea, and relaxin levels are therefore very high in the blood in these pregnancies. Then, of course, you have a spontaneous pregnancy, which typically there's one egg that ovulates, one follicle, one corpus luteum. And then you have another group of patients who may have ovarian failure. So they can't make any follicles, they can't make any corpus lutea, which follow, but they can still get pregnant, and that's through donor eggs. And so they get a donor egg from another young woman, that's then in vitro fertilized, and then it's placed back in the womb of this woman, and she can carry a pregnancy. But by definition, this woman has no follicle, has no corpus lutea, she has ovarian failure, she has no circulating relaxin. So now we have a spectrum of relaxin concentrations in human pregnancy from zero to normal levels to very high levels in which we can then study the impact of these changing levels of relaxin on the maternal hemodynamics adaptations in pregnancy. And currently I have a program project grant to study this and we're still recruiting so I can't give you any answers to the question, but, but this is the technique that we're using to address this uh, through studying these women with assisted reproductive technologies. As I understand it, relaxin is a potential therapeutic, although as you indicated, if the levels are too high, it can cause problems. Is that correct? Yeah, so relaxin, I think it makes sense that relaxin would be advantageous in therapy for a disease of pregnancy called preeclampsia, which is a vasoconstrictive disease, high blood pressure, as I alluded to earlier. And the reason is that in normal human pregnancy, relaxin goes up in the first trimester and then comes back down and achieves intermediate values thereafter. And the idea would be to boost relaxin from those intermediate values back to the high levels of the first trimester in a woman who developed preeclampsia, which always occurs typically in the third trimester. And therefore, by increasing this vasodilatory hormone, this could offset this vasoconstrictive syndrome and allow the woman to carry the pregnancy longer without having to terminate the pregnancy, thereby allowing the fetus to grow more, because the big complication is when you deliver a very immature fetus. So I think it could be therapeutic in preeclampsia, but relaxin's not feminizing like estrogen. And so it can also be utilized in the non-pregnant population and in males. So relaxin is equally vasodilatory in males and females, even though relaxin doesn't circulate in males. And so 
As an example, based on our basic science in the animals, we had proposed that it would be a wonderful afterload reducer for heart failure. Relaxin also increases renal function and decreasing renal function is a harbinger of a poor outcome in a patient with heart failure. And so now the hormone is in a phase 3B trial of acute heart failure in order to confirm the phase 2 and 3 findings that after a 48-hour infusion at the admission for acute heart failure, 180 days later, there was a 37% reduction in cardiovascular mortality and overall mortality. And so we don't know why their survival is enhanced, and we hope this turns out to be the case in the larger trial, but it could have to do with the fact that renal function has been relatively preserved with this hormone. And again, this comes from basic pregnancy physiology, where relaxin increases GFR and renal blood flow by approximately 50%. So this turns out to be, I'll use the word, a popular therapeutic procedure What's the source of relaxing? First of all, I really want to express caution that, you know, there are a number of indications where I think relaxin might be therapeutic, but at the same time, you know, it may not. And so it really obviously needs very careful clinical trials to verify. But the source of this currently is recombinant, and this is now owned by Novartis. However, Other companies are beginning to make relaxin, you know, maybe types of relaxin that will persist longer in the circulation. And investigators, including myself, are looking into small molecule memetics. And the reason is that relaxins like insulin, it's very difficult to give. Uh, It has to be given subcutaneously. It can't be taken orally or IM. And of course, this is very ponderous. And so there's really need for small molecule memetics of relaxin. So these are the possible agonists of the relaxin receptor that people are looking into. So one of the things that typically try to touch base with with these podcasts is to uh, not give false hope for people who listen. And I I gather that this is still a very preliminary study that... uh, needs more work before it can be potentially clinically available. Yes, I and I emphasized already that caution that we need to have. I think as scientists we get very excited about the possibilities, but particularly with relaxin, there is a history of species differences, and, and this is based on the fact that it was originally thought mainly to be a reproductive hormone. So in rodents, for example, it inhibits myometrial contraction. It causes cervical ripening, but this does not occur in women at all. But having said that, in our work anyway, we have always gone back and forth between animals and humans, humans and animals, and because I'm very much aware of this potential for species differences, and so far the vascular effects of relaxin seem to have crossed species boundaries. So I am encouraged that the studies we've done in animals, which suggest it might be a wonderful therapeutic, will pan out in humans. On the other hand, we need to be very, very cautious, as you said. The one upside is that it's a naturally circulating hormone, and the application of relaxin to disease states already in in previous trials have shown that it's has a pretty safe record, and so I'm encouraged by that, that it may be a f- have a fairly good safety profile. 
So Dr. Conrad, uh, I understand that uh, you also have uh, some interest and some focus on the placenta as it relates to some of these issues, is that correct? Yes, it is. So the current dogma is that compromised placentation in humans is what leads ultimately to this disease preeclampsia typified by hypertension. It's really a systemic disease and in its severest form can cause maternal and fetal death. And so I've always been very much interested in the placenta because it may be at the root of this disease. And so we've done a lot of studies on delivered placentas. We looked at HIF transcription factors, we've looked at erythropoietin, we've looked at nitric oxide, cytokines, and so on. But over the years, having done that, I began to realize that this is a delivered placenta, and the disease of preeclampsia starts in the first trimester, if not earlier. So what am I looking at? Am I looking at cause or consequence? And my feeling was I was probably looking in the placenta, delivered placenta, more at consequence of the disease rather than cause. So what you really need to look at is placenta from early pregnancy. And there's a procedure called chorionic villus sampling in which small piece of placenta is taken by a transcervical or transabdominal approach. And this is done typically in women of advanced maternal age where there might be suspicion of aneuploidy or polyploidy. These tissues undergo genetic investigation and the woman then can find out, for example, if she's carrying a Downs child. So in some cases, there's surplus tissue. We save these tissues over about five years. And here we have tissue from 11 weeks of gestation. And in four of these women, about 3%, which is the incidence of preeclampsia, four went on to get preeclampsia. So now we have this key tissue. So we matched it with eight normals, and we ran microarrays and performed bioinformatics. It was really surprising what popped up. Of the differentially expressed genes, about 40% of them dealt with endometrial maturation. So this led us to think that maybe it's the soil rather than the seed that's impaired in women who go on to develop preeclampsia. These changes, and what the data suggested is that the women who develop preeclampsia failed to undergo normal endometrial maturation, which is crucial for implantation and placentation. So currently we're studying this further by obtaining endometrial biopsies in the late luteal phase on women who had prior preeclampsia, the idea being that there already may be a molecular signature in the endometrium indicative of impaired endometrial maturation, and we might be able to do something about that. We might be able to mature the endometrium, thereby reducing the risk of preeclampsia. So clearly this is a long-range project, but I think it's fairly new insofar as most people don't think about the endometrium and its maturation process as being an antecedent of preeclampsia. So I'm really excited about this and hope that we can get funding to carry this work forward. So the maturation of the endometrial tissue is something that the, I believe you understand occurs. But do I understand correctly that the focus of the research is to understand why this happens? Yeah, so the maturation in humans, the endometrium, actually becomes prepared for pregnancy before conception. So in the late secretory phase of the menstrual cycle, the endometrium already starts maturing, glands get better developed, blood supply increases, and so on in preparation for implantation. 
Then after implantation, this maturation process continues, develops further, allowing for placentation and also nutrition for the placenta and the fetus. So this is a normal process. There have been, uh, at least in the endometrial cycle, a lot of microarrays run. And so we know what genes go up and are involved in normal endometrial maturation. And so using these microarrays in the public domain, we compared these to our samples from early pregnancy that I referred to earlier in the women from preeclampsia. And it's there that the signature of impaired endometrial maturation popped up. These genes were not increased in this early placental tissue, these endometrial maturation genes, of women who went on to get preeclampsia compared to normal pregnancy. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but this is sort of why the endometrial maturation is critical, we think, to not only implantation, but perhaps also to placentation. It sounds like you're on an interesting course of study. Again, as you pointed out, this is early on, but it looks very promising. Dr. Conrad, I'd like to thank you for joining us today and sharing with us your interesting and pioneering studies in this important area. We will put a link on the podcast site to Dr. Conrad's website if you want to further explore his research and his interests. I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And until we meet again, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Thank you very much.